0: Hi there, my name is Clifford Machingaifa, Associate Producer with the African Tech Roundup. In today's episode, we speak with Michael Schlein, CEO of Axion, a global non-profit organization committed to creating a financially inclusive world. This episode was taped on the sidelines of Afrobytes, New York, and we're excited to be a part of Afrobytes again in 2020, happening in Paris on the 9th of June at Station F. We're really hoping to meet you there as we have the world's most diverse innovation ecosystem all under one roof. My first question basically is how you frame the notion of inclusion within the context of what you do.
1: Let me start with what inclusion looks like and then talk about the absence of inclusion. I live in New York City. Like many global capitals of the world, we take for granted financial inclusion. So I have credit cards. I have debit cards. I have ATMs on every corner. I have access to appropriate insurance for my health, for emergencies, for a variety of of things. And um, I have places where I can save and invest my money. And I have efficient payments, easy, cheap digital payments. And For example, my bills come in on a monthly basis and my income comes in on a monthly basis. And all of that is enormously convenient. And I take all of it for granted, uh, as as your listeners do as well. Um, But for three billion people, they live in poverty. They live near poverty. They live without access to or they have really poor access to the global financial system. And their lives are so much harder because of that. So a typical woman living in poverty gets paid once a year at the time of the harvest, and she has to make that money work all year, and yet she lacks a safe place to save. Just even that phrase, a safe place to save, we take that for granted. She may have to travel hours to make a single payment in cash to keep the lights on. And those are hours that she's not getting compensated because she works on a farm and no one's paying her for the time that she's not producing. She cannot get appropriate insurance, even though she lives in an area where there may be droughts or there may be floods. Um, No one will lend to her to build her business. And perhaps worst of all, she lives completely in a cash world which means she is invisible to the global financial system and the global financial system is invisible to her. And so even if she's making regular payments to keep the lights on or to pay for school, she is not getting any credit for that. She's not building any credit history. So she's doomed to stay invisible to the global system as long as she's living in a cash world. And again, all of that makes her life much harder and all of that, we can change and we must change. And if, if we can change, we can make the whole system stronger and better and more more inclusive for all. That is our vision, a financially inclusive world where everyone has all those tools they need to make their life easier.
0: To my mind, there's a distinction between inclusion and access. And it, it appears to me that most of the efforts that claim the notion of inclusion would probably be better described as access plays as opposed to inclusion plays. Do you see that distinction?
1: I think uh, you are completely right. People talk about financial inclusion and often they measure it in terms of access. And I think that misses the point. In fact, the global FinDex produced by the World Bank and funded by the Gates Foundation is an invaluable tool. Every three years, they produce a new version of the global FinDex and it is the scorecard by which we measure Uh, progress, but it is very focused on access. So for example, uh, the new data showed that 1.7 billion people remain completely excluded. When I talk about 3 billion, I'm also talking about people who are poorly served, but the people that are completely excluded uh, are 1.7 billion. And we made some progress from 2014 to 2017, uh, more than half a billion people gained access to an account and to your point, that's access. Yeah. Access is not our vision. Access is only the first step towards our vision. Uh, in fact, when you dig a little bit deeper, hundreds of millions of the people who have gained some form of access turn out to have dormant accounts, accounts that are not used in more than a year. And if you think about that in your own life, Um, you use your financial accounts, you know, in many cases daily, if you haven't used an account in more than a year, you barely know it even exists. And what it really means is, uh, generally speaking, it means a government or an employer made a payment to you through an account and you withdrew it. And now you're, you just cashed it out and you never are going back to that account. So you don't even think of that account as, as anything worthwhile, um, Access is an important first step, but it is only a first step. Our real vision is to help people save, help people get appropriate insurance, help people get appropriate credit, and and use financial services to manage their day-to-day and, of course, seize opportunities when they when they get them. Um, that is far, far more than access. I, I, I actually, uh, in your question, there's an even more important point. I think sometimes we get... Lost in the conversation conversation around access, and the real prize is uh, making sure people use and benefit from that access. It's not access alone. Is um, <laughs> a friend of mine um, comp- said uh, measuring access is like measuring uh, gym memberships <laughs> when you're trying to talk about uh, you know personal health. Gym memberships is not the way to me- measure the, the uh, uh, an individual's health. I, I thought that was a, a powerful analogy.
0: That is uh, that that's one I haven't heard before, and it's a good one. I, I, shall I read into the fact that you you know prior to becoming president and CEO of Action, you you were a civil servant at some would say some of the highest levels attainable within within America, chief of staff of the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission. Um, for example, and then of course, you were a senior executive for Citigroup. Would I be right in in reading into the fact that you now head up what's essentially a nonprofit in, in saying the rhetoric you've sort of shared so far doesn't seem top of mind enough at the sort of state level or sort of the government level in most countries. Uh, and it's certainly only become topical for banks or the, the the financial fraternity now, being that they're being disrupted by by various issues. Is our only answer to look to, to nonprofits doing impact investment?
1: So, um, there's much in your question. (laughs) Um, Personally, I um, started out in investment banking, and you're right, I spent a dozen years in public service working both in uh, New York City government and then uh, in the federal government at the Securities and Exchange Commission. And then I spent a dozen years working on Wall Street, working at um, Citigroup, where I I had a great opportunity to uh, run a variety of corporate functions. And when you're working in public service, you're trying to make the world a better place. When you're working, you know, at a level Well, some would
0: argue you're trying to help, you're trying to make people happy uh, and get other people <laughs> elected, some would argue. <laughs>
1: well, no, no, I mean, for me, I, I was very much motivated by the public service, the chance to serve and, and, and to try to improve the world. And, and, um, and I think most people who go into government have that, have that desire. And then I, I had a, 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 a dozen years at, at Citi where I had the chance to learn about the world and see the importance of financial services, but largely for you know, rich people and, and large corporations. That's, that's who the banking sector serves. And so for me, the chance to work at Axion is the combination of the best of both worlds. I, 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 every day I get to try to make the world a better place by bringing financial services to people who really need them. and and um, again, you know, I, I come back to what I started with. We take a lot of this for granted as we should, but for three billion people, the global financial system is a complete failure. it it's It's a failure to them. And for the first time in human history, we have new tools that can really change that. and that's 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 what excites me every day.
0: I suppose, um, my question is really one about incentive, right? And <laughs> I don't want you to perceive it as a low blow to to sort of um, be distrustful of uh, of uh, civil civil servants. But I, I suppose the issue for me, or my question to you, is really what have you learned about incentives, misplaced incentives, perhaps poorly framed incentives. Totally um, out of touch incentives that that basically constitute governance in many countries, and then of course the unfortunate um, incentives—you know, often hard-nosed capitalist incentives that are set within sort of global financial, you know, giants. And I suppose, given given you've been in all three sort of scenarios, now in a nonprofit sort of impact investment role. What have you learned about the importance of of incentives or perhaps when they're poorly set, what the consequences can be?
1: It's actually a great question. I have now traveled to nearly 90 countries around the world and I have spent a lot of time and and I do appreciate that many governments uh, do attract people for the wrong motives And so there are many people that that um, see the chance to work in government as a chance to benefit personally. I have not had that experience. Uh, I I worked again at pretty high levels in, in New York City government doing economic development and then at the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I have many friends who have worked in in high levels in the U.S. government and I, I'm a big believer in public service, and I think theres it's a noble calling, and I think you can have a great impact. And I think most of the people I've met who have uh, chosen that to spend some or all of their life in public service are choosing it for the right reasons. So um, I, am, I, am I blind to people who go into government for the wrong reasons? Absolutely not. Um, uh, um, uh, but I do think my experience is most of the people uh, who, who take on roles in public service are are motivated to do the right thing.
0: Uh, and then... I, I suppose I, my question is more around the systemic issues that you yeah. might have observed.
1: No, no. I, 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 and I, I was going to get to the, the other side of your question. So I, I did spend, spend a dozen years working in a large bank, and I do think large corporations have enormous power and impact uh, and they are organized around maximizing profits, and all the incentives are aimed at that, and I think that's uh, powerful and uh, I think you can harness that and I, I very much enjoyed my time and and learned a great deal but i did I did then have the opportunity and took took the opportunity to work in a global nonprofit that for me personally combines the best of both worlds where you've got the pub- public purpose of trying to make world a better place. And you've got the double bottom line. We're trying to not only have a great social impact, but show you can do it in a sustainable and a scalable uh, and therefore a profitable way um, to maximize our Would you go as far mission. as saying
0: you have a better regi- uh, incentive regime?
1: For our mission? Absolutely. Absolutely. But don't get me wrong. I, um, we do a lot of work with big financial institutions, and you have to appreciate that our goal our vision of a financially inclusive world is we're trying to change the world for 3 billion people. Um, We are a nonprofit. We we are supported by very generous philanthropy, but to change the world for 3 billion people, all the philanthropy in the world is insufficient to that task. So very much a part of Axiom's mission is to work with banks and global companies to get them interested in meeting the financial needs of the poor, so uh, I appreciate your, your your line of questioning is very interesting about incentives. I think I think part of Exxon's mission is to show you can have a huge social impact and also a healthy ro- return, and that is how we we will attract investment, and that is how we we will attract innovation, and that is how we we will attract partners who will begin to see those 3 billion people as a big market opportunity. And so we're trying to harness the capital sector, not criticize it. Disrupt right. it? <laughs> well, well, no, no. Um, disrupt it is a whole different thing. I, I do think much of the innovation we're seeing is highly, highly disruptive, but it is still leveraging investment and leveraging the corporate world I, I don't see any other way to have a sustainable and scalable impact in the world without purchasing business
0: Gotcha look, I'm a pragmatist. I happen to agree with you. I just thought it's always interesting to ask, especially someone like you. I couldn't resist given how you've um your your career so far has spanned uh three very interesting but very different and frankly very differently incentivized. Locuses of power within global finance, you know. So it was just quite interesting for me to hear your take on that. But perhaps for people who aren't familiar with Action, here's your opportunity to sort of break down, you know, your group structure. I, I have in front of me a couple of PDFs that quite impressively put on three or four pages everything you guys have invested in and. Essentially, give an idea of what your focus is in terms of growing a portfolio and also engineering the future of, quote unquote, inclusion um, as you define it.
1: So let me take a little step back first before I talk about what we're doing today to just give you a little bit of history. actually Ex- 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 started in 1961, again, a, no- a global nonprofit. Uh, our work began in Venezuela, even though we were a, a U.S.-based organization. And we largely were a private sector Peace Corps, which was quite extraordinary because in 1961, the Peace Corps did not exist. In fact, our founder went on to run the Peace Corps uh, later on. And we spent a dozen years in uh, Venezuela and then in several other Latin American countries basically doing community development. And in the very early 1970s, we said our clients need more than community development. They need capital. So, we started experimenting with making very small loans to the poor, and we found that they could repay loans 97% of the time, a statistic that has held up over several decades since then. Um, We were doing it in Latin America. Dr. Muhammad Yunus was doing it in Bangladesh. Others were doing it in Southeast Asia. And we were part of and helped to build the global microfinance microcredit micro lending movement and Axion built a string of nonprofits in almost every latin american country to make very small loans to the poor and we spent you know many years helping them grow and raise money and work on their methodology and and get to greater scale and in 1992 in what was a controversial event then and sort of a obvious now and seminal event in our industry. In 1992, Axion created the world's first for-profit bank for the poor, uh, Banco Sol in, in Bolivia. And Banco Sol as a nonprofit, had been doing very well. But in 1992, as a for-profit structure, all of a sudden it could access the Debt markets. All of a sudden, it could access the equity markets. It could hire talent in a new way. It was regulated in a different way. Later on, it could take deposits. and And Banco Sol, which had been doing very well as a nonprofit, basically took off and and catapulted to a completely different tra- trajectory. We then went back to. All of those nonprofits we had created and recreated them as for profits. So we became an early equity investor in, and then helped to build some of the truly great microfinance institutions in the world, including Banco Sol in Bolivia, Mi Banco in Peru, Compartamos in Mexico, and then later on Compartamos we had the world's first IPO for a microfinance bank, which was very successful. Again, controversial in the day. Um, But that allowed us to expand through 10 countries in Africa, India, China, the Philippines, and most recently Myanmar. And so we, over many decades now, have been working towards creating a financially inclusive world by building institutions that are focused on bringing financial services to the poor. That's That's our background. In the last decade or so, we like everyone li- listening to this, our, our our lives have been changed by technology and uh, Axon's work has been changed by technology. And so we, over the last decade, have become a fintech venture capital investor in some of the very disruptive technologies that are rewriting the rules of how you can meet the financial needs of the poor. Um, we are probably the leader in seed. Stage investing in Fintech for inclusion. I get to say that very carefully because there's a lot of money in seed stage investing. There's a a, a a lot of money in Fintech, and there's a good amount of money in inclusion. But if you draw if you draw those circles together and you see the overlap of the three, um, we're among the only um, organizations that are exclusively focused on seed, fintech. And inclusion, and we now have looked at thousands of companies to make investments in about forty companies um, that are some of the most disruptive in the world. Um,
0: and I mean, on the continent, uh, that includes the likes of Lydia, yes, uh, of Nigeria, obviously uh, Yoko of South Africa, Zuna, All Life, also of South Africa. Yes. Uh, so, again, having seen thousands of companies in that space, what's what uh, stood out in those those particular examples, or well,
1: just be, perhaps before, give before me a sense, give that, me a
0: sense of, give me a sense. Of, oh, sorry,
1: no, no. Before I do that, just let me briefly say. So, we, in addition to our work with seed early stage companies, we also are an investor at the early and growth stage companies, which are much larger investments in much larger companies. We also continue to invest in uh, banks and microfinance institutions, all trying to meet the needs of the poor. We also have a group called uh, Global Advisory Solutions, which are consultants. They're sort of um, Accenture, Bain, McKinsey-like consultants that go and advise financial service providers on how to leverage new technologies to reach people that haven't been reached before. And the last part of our work is um, we've created the Center for Financial Inclusion, which is a global think tank, which... Uh, works in consumer protection and high-quality research on the challenges, the obstacles and the opportunities to create a financially inclusive world. So I I do think, for example, we have worked hard over many years to find the most innovative companies using new technologies to solve these issues. And now I think it's coming around the other way where they find us. So it's a combination of chicken and egg. Um, you have to work at it, but ultimately, we are, at, again, at the seed level, we are most often the first investor in, the first institutional in, investor in these companies after friends and family. And so I think we've developed a reputation for willing, a willingness to invest earlier than anyone. And also, we go in and we bring high quality, what we call portfolio engagement, which is again services and consulting services that that um, help these companies have greater impact.
0: Do you end up finding startup culture bending to to sort of meet your mold, or do you genuinely find people trying to solve local problems that just happen to be representative of the of your ethos?
1: Well, there's. We, there is a lot of innovation happening all around the world. We're exclusively focused on fintech innovation, again, because our mission is to create a financially inclusive world. So we're, so um, um, it's a combination of both. We find them and they find us. But we do, in the courtship and in the due diligence process, make sure that we're very, very aligned and that these companies truly are double bottom line, that is, they are not only trying to have a big social mission, but they're also trying to be scalable and sustainable and profitable. That is how they will grow. I should say that we're particularly focused on these early stage companies, not just seed, but also early and growth stage uh, companies um, because of the world in which we're living today. Um, We are living in a world where Digital technologies are, are allowing us to reimagine the world. And startups are f- faster and more capable at embracing the new technologies than existing institutions. Let me give you a little feel for what I mean. It used to be, when you spoke about financial services for the poor, it used to be that yeah. um, distances were seen to be insurmountable. Today, with technology, there's no distance in the world that is insurmountable. It used to be, that transaction sizes were too small to be commercially viable. Today, new technologies, there's no transaction size that's too small to be commercially viable. Um, It used to be very hard to figure out how to know your client when you're talking about um, the poor and the base of the pyramid. And today, data and data analytics are allowing us to know our clients in new ways, and so you know, whether it's data, data analytics, the internet of things, machine to machine technology, global satellite imagery, blockchain, psychometrics, biometrics, the level of innovation is extraordinary. And that changes all of our lives, but has particular relevance for how we can solve some of society's um, you know, most enduring problems. That's what we're trying to do. That's why we're focused on, on early stage companies.
0: I'd like you to factor in on a concern I have um, around uh, startups on the continent. Uh, not in, not all of them homegrown. Certainly, all of them Africa focused, which seem to be um, glossing over the fact that as they sort of promote their their sort of inclusion rhetoric, they are in some ways undermining the rights of the people they serve by sort of scraping data. From people who don't know any better and certainly aren't in a, pot- in a position to articulate, never mind protect, uh, their long-term well-being given everything we know is coming as part of this fourth industrial revolution. So I won't name any names. I'm glad to see that giving a a quick squiz at your investment portfolio, some of the people we regularly cite uh, as culprits of this trend um, aren't, aren't here. But I do think you're probably privy to debates that happen in this realm back in in the day when, you know, sort of microfinance was the new buzzword. And I think today we're looking at the whole microloan thing enabled by technology uh, as being the new sort of wave of, of what could potentially be a problematic issue for the African continent.
1: I think your question is a, is a great question. It, it may even be the central policy issue that we as a society really need to grapple with. And and it is about data and data privacy and the trade-offs for society. So I can tell you scores of the companies that we invest in are leveraging data and data analytics in incredibly creative ways and using that to, again, solve problems for people and provide financial opportunity. Um, the, the problem is when people don't realize the trade-offs and they don't understand uh, what they're giving up. I, I do think that people should have be able to make informed choices and say, I'm willing to give you my data, but I want something in return. I think some of the companies we've invested in are built on exactly that premise, that they're trying to empower people to see the value of their personal data, uh, there there are two companies in particular. Uh, one is called Destacamed, which works, works in Latin America in, in Chile, and another one called Credit Mantri that works in India. The, the premise there is you have data that can help tell your story. Think about it this way. You shape your image on Facebook, for example. You would never let someone else put your profile together, you get to control that. Well, how can we let people, you know, credit bureaus you have no inf- influence in, this is a very important description of your financial capability, capability and you're, um, it's a black box. So what these companies are doing is saying, no, 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 just like Facebook, you should be able to put your best foot forward. You should be able to shape how you come across. And, and if you have additional data that would change A financial institution's view of you, that's valuable. And so sure enough, Destacame, for example, if you're making regular rent payments, but they're in cash or utility payments, or you have other support that bolster your case, Destacame can analyze that. And then you get a Destacame score that a bank can use to lend. And so, uh, again, it comes back to your question. It, 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 people should be empowered by their own data. Um, they should not just give it up and, and lose control of it. It's a very, very important societal issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can appreciate how a company like Lydia, for example, providing SME invoicing and uh, sort of, uh, you know, forward financing. I understand how if you're in that sort of market, um, you can fully expect People can understand what the value of what you are giving versus what they're getting. You know, it just becomes a little more of an issue for me when I see companies, in the name of say lighting up Africa or something, uh, employ these uh, you know very aggressive data harvesting um, regimes. And it's not just them; it's um, potentially smartphone manufacturers. It's it's a lot of people. I just yes, I just imagine that uh, you. And your team and your executive team have to walk a fine line around looking into the future to see the benefit of allowing certain things that might upfront appear to be invasive and uh, unfair exchanges of of value occur up front. I wonder how you frame that for yourself.
1: The key is making sure people are making informed choices. So if I say to you, I'll give you a you know, $200 loan, if you give me all of your data on your phone, you know, in perpetuity, you may say, I'm not gonna make that, you know, my, my data is more valuable than $200. Now, on the other side, if you're talking about a family in, you know, rural Kenya, that has no access to financial services, and that $200 could really change their life in a good way, they might make that choice differently. So so uh, it, it's all about informed choices and uh, making sure people understand the choices. And I do think the, the, the thing that we all have to guard against is um, the hidden choices, the uninformed choices, the things that you don't know you're agreeing to. But I, I, I do think people can make informed choices to trade. And, and I hope that the whole world starts to appreciate that data is incredibly valuable and you should o- only give access when when you're getting something in return.
0: I suppose my sense of things, if I'm honest, is just that a lot of the rhetoric around financial inclusion and access isn't accompanied with enough um, resources and, uh, and and intent uh, around sort of solving the, the, the financial uh, literacy problem that we have in places like the African continent, because there are people, you know, clicking yes to to app, requests all the time all over the continent and technically that takes sort of founders off the hook in terms of well we asked them for permission then they said sure um or they bought into our notion of we're creating value and uh, and they're sort of paying for it with data except i think one out of maybe 20 might not even know what the implications are long term of the of decisions of that nature and i suppose that's 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 one of my that's one of my biggest bugbears
1: no, and, and, and you're not alone. I think this goes way beyond financial inclusion and poverty and even way beyond the, the continent. I do think you know Europe has been leading the way in terms of new privacy regulations. And I think um, you know, China is starting to use data and data analytics for social scoring, which is very troubling in many ways. Yep. Uh, I think these are the central issues of, of society today. Uh, in all contexts, I think, I think really um, understanding privacy and the trade-offs, data privacy, and who has access to your data. And again, the goal is to make informed choices. I think these are huge, huge issues for all of us to wrestle with. But I, I, I do think you're right in your questioning. And I think we have a special obligation to make sure that their choices are informed.
0: Absolutely. That that said, I
1: I do a lot of work with our clients, and, and and our clients are extraordinarily sophisticated. They may not have financial resources, but they're they're very sophisticated, and I think they are quite capable of making well-informed
0: choices. I'm so glad you didn't say that you work with your clients and they don't give a flying horseshoe because I would have believed you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'm do. i I'm not so cynical as to believe that everybody's out for themselves and doesn't care about these issues. And I, I know enough founders in the space to, to know that there are no simple answers to this question. And of course, I'm not so backward as to believe that we have to sort of wait until every sort of potential conflict of interest is settled before we actually try things and And move forward, but I do think we need more people making more noise about some of these issues. So, last few questions for you are really easy.
1: No, no, let let me. uh, I I just want to. um, um, I know that uh, Tunde, uh, the entrepreneur, has been on your show before, and and he's one of the great entrepreneurs. That um, I, I think Lydia is an extraordinary company that is. Helping to find new ways of meeting the financial needs of small mom and pop businesses in Nigeria. But let me just describe some of the innovation that we're seeing, and I'll I'll particularly focus on a trend that we're seeing more recently in providing insurance to people who have been left out. And again, here, people sometimes misuse the loan product because they don't have insurance. So if you have a fire, or um, you may borrow to rebuild, but what you really should have had is insurance. But if insurance is not available, you may take out a loan. But what we're now seeing is new ways of, again, using digital technologies for insure tech is what they call it. So I'll give you a a few examples. Um, Pula is a company in Kenya that is using the data from satellite imagery to help meet the needs of smallholder farmers, single family, one acre farms, which of course is a big portion of the 3 billion people. 60% of Africa's Africa's population are involved in in farming. And from the data from satellite imagery, they can help assess if a farm has been flooded, uh, if there's a drought, if the seeds are, are, are working well so you can provide insurance and plus, especially in the context of Kenya, you can do it with um, M-Pesa so people can pay for the insurance and also get paid back when there's a claim through a digital currency. And it's, it's really pretty amazing. That, that's one example. Another example is Lumkani in South Africa where in a small informal village, a fire can not only hurt one home, but can hurt the entire village. And so what Limkani does is they use the Internet of Things and they use devices that are both heat sensors and fire sensors. And if there's a fire or heat in one unit, the entire community gets notified in real time. And that can, uh, that can save lives, <laughs> that can uh, save homes, and that can make an entire community that was uninsurable can all of a sudden be insured. And the last one I'll mention is a great company also in South Africa called All Life, which is the first company in the world to provide insurance for people with HIV. And now they're also working with people with diabetes. And that's unfortunately a very large percent of the population. And today, if you have the right cocktail of antiretroviral medications, you can live for decades. As long as you stay on your meds, And so they use digital technologies to make sure that you're staying on the correct regime. And as long as you do that, you have insurance. And especially in the South Africa context, you cannot own a home unless you have life insurance. So we're talking about a a significantly Financially excluded population that all of a sudden can be included. So uh, those are just a couple of examples of some new technologies that are finding new ways to solve old, old problems. Well, I'm
0: I'm grateful to you because I was my last question. Well, one of my last questions was going to be, um, do you have any favorites? Uh, I know you you've 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 <laughs> ah. you've uh, already alluded to some, and I think in fairness, uh, I I want you to be I, I want you to to rest easy in the knowledge that I'm not a cynic. I mean, even just looking at your portfolio at at a glance, right? Um, you you mentioned all life. I know people personally who who wouldn't have life insurance except for that company. And of course, now that's a trend that's caught on, and other insurance companies have have started to offer. Well, not all certainly, but other insurance companies have come online and started to quote unquote do the right thing. I do definitely have firsthand um, experience of how tools of this nature, innovation of this nature in the financial services space can truly change lives. I suppose my burden is that people like you guys have a sense of just how profound the wave of sort of rhetoric and and policymaking potential that you start or create. You know, that you guys have a really grounded sense of the implications of what that means for people like us on the ground. And to that end, I, you know, I want to close with this question, which is when was the last time you were hit in the face with like a, di- a direct impact of, of the work you do.
1: I'll stick to Nigeria and Lydia and, and Tunde. I was visiting him not, not long ago and I had the chance to meet with several of his clients. And And just for, for your listeners, what Lydia does is they work with small mom and pop shops and they provide a digital invoice tool for free. And that helps... A small business go from cash to digital records, and then off of that data, uh, Lydia can begin to lend and see precisely uh, what this small store, the small you know enterprise, um, can afford in credit. And and I was with his clients, and literally his clients were saying, you know, Lydia knows more about the finances of these small mom and shops than shops than the entrepreneurs themselves. And it, it's incredible because banks don't know how to lend to these companies. And Tunde is, again, harnessing technology to find new ways of doing things that the banking system has failed out for a very, very long time. And that is tremendously exciting. So yeah, it hits you in the face, and it's great. It's, 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 it's why I do the work. That I know.
0: Michael Schlein, thank you so much for being on the African Take Roundup.
1: It is my pleasure. Glad to talk to you. Thank you.